Welcome to episode 4 of the Butterer podcast. In this podcast I'm going to be talking about a book titled Blueprint: How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, written by Dr. Robert Blomin. Before we go into the main points in the book, I just want to do a little housekeeping. Why am I doing long form book reviews? Usually book reviews are short around 10 to 15 minutes long and they go through some salient points that the creator thinks the listeners must listen but i feel that such reviews especially of books like this are uh, does a disservice to listeners like you because they are omitting many salient points when they are choosing those points and sharing it with you uh, what i believe is not just learning the salient points for the sake of learning those salient points the salient points must be provided in an appropriate with appropriate context with examples even including examples in the book so that you can take that learning and apply it in your life that is the reason why i have decided to do long form reviews i won't call these reviews they are instead short form summary audio books of a book that give you a clearer context of the points that are explained in a book this long form summary is not a disrespect to your time that you have available in a day if you are truly interested in learning things to apply in your life you won't mind the song of talking about books since we have our bookkeeping out of the way so before going into the book I'll give you a small overview of what the book is actually about. The book is divided into two parts. The first part is where the author establishes the reason for DNA's importance in our life and outcomes in our lives by giving examples from research on behavioral genetics done across the globe. And the research is usually looking at um, uh, the western countries since behavioral genetics research is the most um, replicable research. there is little uh, doubt that it will be uh, dissimilar in uh, developing nations the second part of the book talks about how the dna revolution will alter the future in psychology physiology and society in general i have to forewarn you that the author has made the language of explaining complex concepts in as simple terms as possible but you need to know some basic level of statistics and biology to understand some of the concepts that are explained here in the book the author even tries to uh, do it for the reader by explaining statistical terms when they appear in the book and all, and has also dedicated a chapter to explain dna and other technical terms associated with dna and genetics overall when you read the book you'll get a larger picture even without even having to understand some of the nuances of statistics and biology my recommendation is that you invest some money to buy this book in whatever format and read it or listen let's now jump into the book The first part of the book is introduction. Only after 1970s genetics was thought to play a role in psychological traits. Um as demonstrated through this book, greater than 50% of psychological differences between us, usually between individuals in a family, is explained by DNA differences. But only less than 5% of the differences explained by environmental factors. Until 1950s there was a large amount of stress placed on uh, environment as in environment was supposed to or was considered to be one of the most important factors that decided who we are. But with the advent of uh, genetic techno- uh, technologies associated with genetics and uh, behavioral genetics taking root, um, some of those assumptions have been uh questioned and even disproved because of those uh, because of that research since genetics plays a role it also allows us to predict behavior in the future with cutting edge technology obviously 
um without even having to understand the mechanisms underlying those genetic factors as in how those genetic factors cause xyz trait but there is a correlation between that gene and a particular trait or collection of genes and particular trait some environmental factors are difficult to brush off but upon closer examination it is revealed that often genetics plays a role in the observed environmental variable so for example parenting is supposed to uh, be constituted as an an environmental variable but parents are actually responding to the child's genetic propensity or the genetic variability um i'll talk about this a little later also because that example is explained uh, in better detail later um so the implication is that what seems to be environmental effects are just reflections of genetic effects causing experiences that match our genetic propensities so environmental factors that account for the differences as of now more genetic markers will be discovered and fine tuned with better technology um environmental factors that affect for these differences are mostly random and unsystematic and are also sometimes serendipitous unlike the minutely contributing systematic environmental variables like family the implication here is that genetics is the systematic factor that we can study for prediction purposes and not environment the dna difference inherited from parents are the consistent source of psychological individuality that is the blueprint of who we are and the ability to look at dna markers to predict future psychological problems is a powerful tool for prevention before the occurrence of a problem this helps us in predicting risks for individuals for different diseases rather than calculating average risk for the uh, whole family for a particular disease which is a 50 50 chance because children only inherit 50% of the dna from each parent and one of the uh, underlying uh, themes of the book is that uh, there should we shouldn't be looking at uh, traits as either nature or nurture or nature versus nurture but we should be looking at nature and nurture because both genetics and environment plays a role uh, when i say environment systematic environment like family or school are minutely only contributing but there are unsystematic environmental variables which constitute to a large part to psychological traits and also for physiological traits so it should always be looked at in the form of nature and nurture so moving on to part 1 which is why dna matters um chapter 1 is called disentangling nature and nurture the first law of behavior genetics is heritability heritability is the genetic influence on traits our understanding of uh, the influence of genetics is still very nascent the understanding that we have of genetics playing a role in our uh, traits is way off the mark from what science says so people uh, there was there were uh, questions asked uh, of people in a study where people guessed to the influence of, uh, of genetics on weight eye color um uh psychological traits and all different types of variables and uh, some of the actual variables were uh, some of the variables that are known to us like height weight eye color um these are all the people predicted the amount of genetic influence close to what science says uh, but when it came to uh, the the importance of genetics or the influence of genetics on other factors like intelligence psychological problems was way off from what science science is saying 
and uh, this can be attributed to the fact that in the previous century the focus was mainly on environmental factors it has also been found that substantial genetic influences are present in psychological disorders such as personality disorders antisocial behavior uh, autism depres- depression mood swings etc um the heritability estimates are are about uh, when i talked about the first law of behavior genetics uh, which is heritability uh, the estimates of heritability are about what is and not what could be so it only explains what is there in the dna but it doesn't talk about the variation that happens based on dna so there is a lot of variability in how that dna is expressed um so that is not what heritability is saying um it is an estimate which is derived at a population level at a particular time and it changes in different populations so for example uh, obesity in the west versus obesity in the east um we have uh, heritability estimates that are widely varied um the reason for that is because uh, people with a propensity to eat more are going to be having similar dna uh, uh, differences in both western countries and in uh, eastern countries um or countries in the east but the increased availability of high energy foods in the west is making that problem even more exacerbated so uh, that is what i'm trying to say that these estimates are for a particular population at a particular time and not for all populations but, but the heritability estimates uh, are going to be somewhat similar only across all populations by the way the heritability estimate for weight um, um, is 70% in the west hence blaming a person for being overweight or obese is not a particularly productive way to help them and it is also not okay to say that just because they have a genetic propensity they shouldn't work out or you know they, they can be obese um being obese is going to cause physiological problems for them but just because they have a genetic propensity doesn't mean that they can't um uh, alter their environmental cues in a way that they don't become obese so the genes allow for that but they just have a higher propensity to become obese compared to the average population chapter 2 is titled how we know dna makes us who we are this has been established based on adoption studies and twin studies which helped disentangle nature and nurture that is the effect of genes and the effect of environment on a trait adoption studies uh, were done in different ways uh, a one child one out of two children or more children born to a same mother adopted by different couples helped tease out the difference or the effects of the environment two children out of two or more born to a same mother adopted by a single couple helped study the effects of nature and nurture twin studies on the other hand uh, where twins are reared apart helped study the effect of nature which is genes or dna these are the ways in which we can disentangle the effect of nature and nurture twins are similar to each other in many respects not just height and weight but also in psychological variables taste in women etc an example could be seen in the documentary three identical strangers um it is a, a nice story uh, which explains this concept where uh, it is not just the height weight and uh, physical characters characteristics but it is also some of other some of the other psychological uh, traits and uh, such findings came from the ted's study which is twins early development study um and the study also showed high heritability between twins in these variables which are language spatial ability lack of empathy 
um, symptoms of hyperactivity, life satisfaction and happiness. Uh, the implication from the first law of behavioral genetics is that the abnormal is actually normal in psychopathology or actually also in physiology. This assertion will become clear as we discuss about this later. Uh, there is a chapter dedicated to uh, this concept and it's even titled Abnormal is Normal. Uh, we'll talk about this concept a little later uh, in the video. So the proportion of variance, the spread in a normal distribution, um, that co-varies is the correlation observed for a particular trait. So if different, um, uh, if, if, if the proportion of variance for different factors are co-varying at the same time. I mean, if, if they're if they are showing same uh, similar influences on a particular trait, that is the cor correlation observed for a particular trait between individuals. So, if correlation is zero, then the heritability is zero percentage. That is, no percentage of the exp expressed trait is explained by DNA differences between the individuals. Uh, if, on the other hand, correlation is equal to one, then the heritability is hundred percentage which means that the expressed trait is fully explained by DNA differences between the individuals. Of course, the correlation will most probably not be one because there will always be some sort of unexplained factors just like we discussed earlier, non-shared environments, which are unsystematic. Um, but it will lie between, the correlation will lie between zero and one. And for twins, it will be on the higher side for most traits. So along this line, the correlation for individual, uh, I mean, identical twins for weight is 0.84 while the correlation for non-identical twins was 0.55. The explanation here is that uh, 84 out of 100 twin sets will have similar weights whereas only 55 out of 100 non-identical twin sets will have similar weights. So that is what the correlation tells us about a population. The heritability estimate for weight as we discussed earlier is 70 percentage for the population. So for uh, just for reference purposes, you'll also have to understand uh, in statistics the effect sizes uh, which is the variance explained. Uh, the description of effect sizes go like this. 1 percentage is considered small effect, 10 percentage is considered medium effect and 25 percentage is considered large effect. So as you can see, uh, the correlation is 84, 0.8.84, which means 84 percentage heritability of weight in identical twins is seen, uh, which is a, an extremely large effect. And it shows us that genetics explains a large amount of observed difference between individuals, while environmental effects have only been observed to have a very small effect, which is around, um, which is less than 5%. Chapter 3 is Nature of Nurture. If you had been following the scientific uh, community in the past five years, you'll uh, know that there has been a uh, replication crisis. Um, but it is also uh, important to understand that behavioral genetics is one of the most replicable research because genetic effects are so large to miss and their effect is too large unlike many studies with very low effect sizes. And this can be partly blamed due to the obsession with p-values, that is uh, testing for statistical significance rather than um, uh, or in addition to testing for effect sizes. So uh, when researchers found a statistical uh, significance between two groups, they uh, had published those re uh, research, but the effect sizes of some of those findings were extremely small to be uh, accounted for or uh, the, the effect sizes were so small that uh, they wouldn't have mattered in the larger picture. But in case of genetics, since the effect sizes are extremely large, um, it is very it is impossible to um, have or at least it is very rare to have replicability problems. Genetic studies account for the environmental effects also um, by controlling for its effects. 
while the psychological studies we have done in the last century rarely accounted for genetics this is one of the reasons why the observed environmental effects were just accepted as environmental effects rather than genetic influences um which make a person uh, have a higher propensity to seek such environments so as we discussed earlier uh, in the first chapter uh, let's take the concept of parenting um you you may have heard some parents saying that uh, they uh, the the first child was very open to listening to books or reading uh, if someone is reading the child was always happy to listen to it while the second child of that same parent might have been the complete opposite um and the parent may think that uh, and and uh, in a, in later life the child that was okay with listening to the book or whatever material may have had higher uh, educational performance while the second child might not have had similar performance levels um in education um and parents start blaming themselves for not having uh, you know uh done the same with the second child also but the problem is uh, the the first child may have had a genetic propensity to listen to such things or genetic propensity to have aptitude for education while the second one might not have and the parents may have just been reacting to the genetic differences between the individuals so the environment at first as it uh, even though it looks like it is a major factor once we account for genetics it will explain the reason why that is happening another example is the heritability estimate of divorce which is around 40 percentage um children whose parents underwent a divorce have a 40 percentage likelihood of getting a divorce in their lifetime also um usually this is interpreted as an environmental risk because the theory is that children seeing their parents getting divorced are just emulating them it instead needs to be attributed to the genetic propensity to have a similar personality as their parent which drove them in the first place towards the divorce so uh, you can see here how genetic influence um once you account for the genetic influence the environmental factors seem to go away having said this genetic influences are just probabilistic propensities and not deterministic programming um this is the beauty of the one percentage of dna that is different between individuals which allows for variability thereby giving some wiggle room for us to make changes from our side to manipulate our genetic propensities a little so that we have a positive life um this is the reason why you could have heard some philosophers say that our lives and by extension other dna based life forms are deterministic sprinkled with a little bit of randomness uh, that is 99% of our dna is what is making much of our lives predetermined so we don't know how the enzymes are functioning in our body or we don't have conscious control of those enzymes but that is just happening so that is the predetermined part which is 99% while the 1% is just a randomness so there is variability and that variability happens randomly uh, that is what evolution uh, tells us um and that that 1% is what is the sprinkling of randomness in our lives the bottom line is that we use the environment mostly to get what our dna blueprint whispers to us um an example of this would be a, a person with a genetic propensity to have depression or a genetic propensity to be depressed is more likely to interpret his environment in a pessimistic manner which is elegantly explained as nature of nature by the author chapter 4 is titled dna matters more as time goes by so genetic influences increase as we age this is actually counterintuitive to think as we believe that 
With age, we have more time to experience the environment and allow the environment to alter our behaviors. Uh, an example of this would be uh, heritability estimates derived for intelligence. Um, at infancy, the heritability estimate was 20%, which means that 20% of the observed differences between infants is uh, explained by genetics. And uh, the heritability of intelligence at childhood is 40% and heritability at adolescence is 60%. Uh, and based on a limited sample, heritability at age 85 was 80%. Um, so uh, the bottom line here is that you grow into your genes and who you are supposed to be, loosely speaking, um, as, you, uh, as time goes by. You, know, you could have heard people also saying that they fear they are becoming like parents as they are aging. Uh, even though they may have rebelled during their time, uh, teen years to be the opposite of their parents. Chapter 5 is titled Abnormal is Normal. Here, uh, this is a very important concept. Uh, it, it plays a major role in uh, what the author is trying to convey using this book. So the disorders that we characterize are just the consequences of gene expression and the extremes of the normal distribution of gene expression. That is, no gene for any psychological disorder is present per se, but we just have many of the DNA differences that are likely to express a behavior in line with a characterized disorder. The question should be how many, which is quantitative, of these DNA differences we have which will inform us about the closeness of our trait to an established disorder. But as we will see later, this is not the right word to use because the current medical model for diagnosing psychological problems is wrong. When it characterizes things as disorders, it is qualitative, it is either or. But what the author is trying to say is that it should be quantitative. So there is a normal distribution of gene expression or trait expression and the disorders that we classify right now are in the extremes, either on the right end of the uh, normal distribution, right tail or the left tail. Um, but there is a range of a trait that can be expressed, which is why it should be called as dimensions rather than disorders. That is what the author is trying to convey in this chapter. Uh, one should also understand that a gene is responsible for a varied level of expression. It can be expressed as a normal distribution, just like what I uh, explained before. Um, expression at one end of the normal distribution can mean an extraordinary ability, while expression of a gene at the other end of the normal distribution can mean an extraordinarily extraordinary disability. And the expression at the average level could mean optimal level of ability. Taking this quantitative approach, we look at the population and the observed number of DNA differences for a particular disorder or particular trait and these are plotted in a normal distribution. So let's assume that uh, we have 1000 DNA differences which are implicated in depression. Um, none of these 1000 differences are necessary or sufficient but each of these differences contribute a small amount to the risk. So uh, if a person has 500 of these 1000 DNA differences, the person has an average risk of getting depressed. So he'll be in the uh, first um, he'll be between the first standard deviations in the normal uh, distribution. A person with less or more than 500 of these identified DNA differences has either a lower or higher risk of succumbing to depression. This quantification of risk is made possible because of studying DNA differences and this quantitative score is usually represented as polygenic scores for a trait. Hence, the degree to which a problem is alleviated is how success in treatment should be calibrated. 
um as i said the bottom line of this chapter is that there are no qualitative disorders that is either you have it or not that is disorder versus no disorder there are only quantitative dimensions disorder characterized by the extremes of normal distribution of these dna differences chapter 6 is called generalist genes many genes are implicated in different types of disorders that is dna differences for generalized anxiety disorder and generalized general depressive disorder were similar a parent with a depressive uh, psychopathology may have a child with an anxiety psychopathology uh, it's also possible that the child may have depression psychopathology um, also um, but the point is that similar genes are implicated in different psychopathologies so what it says is that genes are general ac- uh, across a disorder uh, or the extreme extreme dimensions of a particular trait uh, whereas environmental risks are specific to a disorder Uh, or that extreme so an example of this would be genetic differences by studying the genetic differences we may understand whether or not a child has or a person has um a risk for anxiety or depression but we won't know what but the environmental risks predict whether you have depression or anxiety so the environment shapes the way in which you uh, express that trait this is incredibly powerful information as it helps us a restructure a um, restructure our environmental cues appropriately based on genetic propensities or genetic propensities um the genetic architecture of um, psychopathology suggests three clusters um the first cluster is internalizing problems uh, like anxiety and depression cluster 2 is externalizing problems such as conduct problems in children alcohol abuse and substance abuse in adults um and also antisocial behavior um the cluster 3 is miscellaneous category uh, where psychotic experience experiences such as hallucinations and other extreme thought disorders uh, such as uh, schizophrenia bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder um the genetic correlation between disorders in each of these clusters is 0.5 percentage that is the correlation between um, anxiety and depression is 0.5 and similarly conduct problems alcohol dependence substance abuse um antisocial behavior is 0.5 and similarly for psychotic experiences and uh, other thought disorders the uh, correlation is 0.5 which means that uh, the dna predicts uh, the person might have either cluster 1 problems cluster 2 problems or cluster 3 problems these generalist genes are not exclusive for disorders uh, what i'm trying to say is that it can also be used to predict abilities such as cognitive abilities um so for example there's a high degree of correlation between dimensions tested on intelligence tests such as verbal ability spatial ability numerical ability um the implication is that if someone is good at math they are also likely to have a good verbal ability and spatial ability the reason why some students are good at one or the other in some cases is due to the fact that these correlation co- correlations are not equal to one that is the correlation between the spatial ability and verbal ability or numerical ability is not one so there is always that wiggle room which allows for uh, differences which makes a person good at math while not very great at verbal ability but they are highly correlated chapter 7 is titled why children in the same family are so different environment is not something passive that is out there which happens to us instead we actively perceive interpret select modify and create environments in part based on our genetic propensities so uh, genes that run in families are counter- contributing to 50% of the observed similarities between the parent and the child 
and the remaining 50 percentage is because of the non-genetic factors which include shared and non-shared environment as we discussed earlier based on the adoption studies and twin studies shared environment contributes to less than 5 percentage of the observed differences between siblings um, hence the remaining greater than 45 percentage of the observed differences are due to unsystematic and anonymous non-shared environment um, a note here uh, to explain what shared, non-shared, genetic and non-genetic factors are. Examples of shared environment would be parenting style, attention to children paid by parents, um, attention paid by parents to children, interaction between parent and child. Um, these are all, uh, these all come under the shared environment category. Non-shared environment is anonymous non-genetic variables that aren't shared environmental variables. Um, the genetic factors are obviously the DNA differences and the non-genetic factors are a combination of shared and non-shared environments. Uh, the shared environment is only important in the early years for physical developmental processes mainly but in the long run their influence is, uh, their influence is negligible once genetic factors are controlled when studying uh, traits. Since the non-shared environment is responsible for greater than 45% of the observed differences, it has been nicknamed as the gloomy prospect because especially in some cases um, these non-shared environmental variables may be salient in how the trait is expressed. Um, we don't know, so for example there are traits that are not explained by genetics so there is and also by non uh, and also by shared environment. So those traits um, are being expressed because of the, this uh, non-shared environment which is actually a salient uh, factor in the expression of this um, trait. Um, but solace can be taken by the fact that DNA differences which are genetic factors are systematic, long-lasting and stable and hence they can be systematically studied and genetic risks determined for a wide variety of dimensions. Uh, we should also accept that these predictions are only directions and may not always be correct due to the influence of non-shared environment. This gap in prediction is also where um, money-grubbing vultures jump in and fool people who do not have a scientific background to understand these nuances. Um, this is especially prevalent in the self-help community where people advertise unlimited potential and taking the concept of growth mindset to the extremes and make millions from people's gullibility and desperation. Chapter 8 is titled The DNA Blueprint. Here, um, the environmental factors such as parents and school is dealt first. So parents and school matter but are not implicated in the offspring's outcome after controlling for genetic influence. Um, hence, parents could help their children to become who they want to be based on their genetic propensities. An example of a vulture industry grabbing people's money in parent is parenting books. They are snake oil salesmen who are just using anecdotes rather than studying a systematic effect like genetic effects or deriving their inferences based on studying genetic effects, which are enormous. Um, parents should avoid taking the attitude that their children are blank slates and they could mold them through their parenting, which is where problems arise due to different expectations. Um, a, a parent of a wealthy individual or a parent of a, high, of a highly educated individual may want um, their children to also be as successful in uh, educational outcomes as they are. But although there is a higher heritability in terms of educational achievement between parent and uh, offspring, the, the offspring may not have that aptitude for educational attainment, but that offspring may have an aptitude for some other um, trait. So uh, the idea is that the parents should not be forcing their children 
thinking that they can mold their children into doing whatever they want by doing appropriate parenting um this this will only result in conflict which will uh, cause uh, disruptions between parent offspring uh, relationships uh, and the same thing goes with schools also the, the the underlying point here is that there is there should be tolerance uh, that we should all uh, come up with once we understand our own genetic self uh, this is not to say that we shouldn't try uh, to become better genes are in destiny and they have a wide range of possibility and hence they are just a blueprint for your potential um so what you can do here is you can try to become better but you should realize that you have an upper limit and a lower limit to that uh, potential chapter 9 delves into uh, a concept about uh, uh, how the society is structured um it is titled equal opportunity and meritocracy um meritocracy is a problematic concept as it may lead to formation of genetic castes because meritocracy is a form of selection which selects for particular genetic propensities for a particular type of job um the the, the meritocracy is not equality of opportunity uh, we, it it looks like a very fair concept but it doesn't ensure equality of opportunity as it involves selection based on capability and competence which is a form of selection uh instead of wealth prejudice or arbitrariness so with all these things wealth prejudice arbitrariness are all factors that we don't have control over similarly capability and competence is also something that we don't have control over it is just something that we are born with so when meritocracy which selects for ability and competence um it is a form of arbitrary uh, uh, arbitrarily providing positives for a particular group of people but that is why meritocracy is considered as a uh, form of it, it doesn't guarantee equality of opportunity but once we dissect the term meritocracy we'll know what we mean merit is ability and effort value and worth um ocracy is governance so what happens here is genetic elite governs who whose status is justified by ability and effort they just had a lucky draw of their uh, lucky draw in terms of their genetics hence they shouldn't just be given the opportunity because they had a lucky draw in their genetics uh this is actually taking opportunity away from people who did not get that lucky draw in respect to genetics and uh, this is also not to say that equality of opportunity is equal to equality of outcome uh, they are completely different uh, concepts but the way in which meritocracy uh, seems to give equality of opportunity is not actually happening that is what i'm trying to say here unlike popular belief genetics is not antithetical to uh, equality of opportunity um the heritability of outcomes can be seen as an index of equality of opportunity so what i mean to say is that once we have genes explaining much of the outcomes that people have uh it it is a good indicator of equality of opportunity that is the environmental advantages and disadvantages such as privilege and prejudice have little influence on outcomes the difference in outcomes now are only due to the genetic differences hence greater for example educational uh, equality of opportunity will result um and that can be uh, the, and that will be indicated in greater heritability of school achievement um higher the heritability of school achievement lesser is the impact of environmental advantages and disadvantages which is actually what equality of opportunity is socio economic status of parents is a measure of their educational and out- occupational outcomes which is highly heritable 
um hence if children of these parents are highly educated and have good occupational outcomes it is mainly due to genetics rather than so called privilege or systematic discrimination uh the 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 factor socio economic status and their educational and occupational outcomes since they are heritable the observed differences between the children of these parents versus um parents of lower socio economic status or educational and occupational outcomes um is due to genetics rather than because of some systematic form of oppression against these two categories of people equal opportunity can't be imposed on children due to active gene environment correlation what it means is that children actively choose their environment due to their genetic propensities um the reason why you can't impose equal opportunity on children is because they each child who's different from one another uh takes advantage of different environments differently that is according to the genetic propensities colleges choosing students based on their tests physical or mental is just a self fulfilling prophecy rather than the quality of the college or school um for example harvard doesn't make students good at education children who have the aptitude to be intelligent and competitive make it into harvard students who are good at education want to get into harvard hence this concept of meritocracy is rather a self fulfilling prophecy rather than a fair system that provides equality of opportunity if these colleges are actually good at imparting education then they should just do the opposite take students who have bad scores and turn them into children who have good scores a note here this aptitude is due to genetic resemblance to their parents to a greater extent rather than privilege as we discussed earlier um privilege would be unfair amount of opportunity um it is just here in this case children are taking advantage of the opportunity based on the genetic propensities so this is completely different from what privilege is this correlation can't be stopped and any attempts to do so will result in inequality of opportunity because we will be asking people with certain genetic propensities to do against what their propensities are this form of selection based on merit or ability which is a heritable trait schools are unintentionally choosing based on students's genes and not based on equality of opportunity i'm talking about it from a school level middle school and high school level um there are high school competitive middle schools and high schools that children strive to get into uh, this may seem like they are selected based on achievement considering their achievement in um, uh, school outcomes um where the school is assumed to have provided equal opportunity but the students perform better due to their genes and not because of the school so even if they stay in the school or in um, the so called good schools they will perform better they have a higher likelihood of performing better uh, and this is how meritocracy can lead to genetic castes the implication here is that schools don't make a difference in terms of achievement at school um, there is always there is a possibility that other opportunities like better prospects for universities greater confidence and leadership skills connections for better jobs in later life can be attained by going to these so called high class schools but this is also partly controlled by genetics that is more than half so a parent should not be worrying about which school they are putting their child in the child will perform better if they have the aptitude for it regardless of the school and even if you you can also see that these opportunities for better prospects uh, for universities greater confidence and leadership skills connections for better jo- jobs in later life these are all opportunities that these children with greater aptitude for education take advantage of so that is their uh, we can argue that genetics is what is playing a role in these people getting these opportunities even if they go to a high class school 
even if they didn't go to high school, high class school, they may uh, most certainly be able to get to those uh, opportunities. As we discussed earlier, genetics might seem like it will limit social mobility and calcify society into genetic cars, but it actually does the opposite. Uh, this this is especially not a problem in modern society because um, a lot of these environmental variations between us isn't systematic as we discussed. These random effects won't create stable castes, and since parents and children are also fifty only fifty percent similar, uh, that is on average fifty percent of the children of bright parents will be bright, while the rest fifty percent will show a widely uh, varying range of brightness or any trait that any trait for that matter. um that is lower than or more than average brightness or whatever trait um which means that there is upward or downward downward mobility in that particular trait uh so this is the reason why um genetic castes won't be formed this upward or downward mobility uh, happens because of the fact that genes can you know be expressed in different uh, levels and this is a statistical phenomenon not a genetic process per se and hence the formation of genetic castes won't be a problem um or genetic castes won't actually happen because of the fact that there is upward and lower mobility in how well the traits are uh, uh, how uh, how much these traits are expressed acknowledging the power of genetics is not fatalistic you can beat the genetic odds you can function better if you go along with your genetic whispers and try to become better at something in line with your propensities hence a society based on meritocracy is not a just society we should look to uh, abolish or try to reduce the income equality by redistributing or taxing the wealth uh, rather than taxing the income uh, and we should also accept that there will be an inevitable inequality of opportunity because of genetics as we discussed earlier gene and environment correlations um hence that should be accepted as a phenomenon uh, in human uh, uh, in the human condition part 2 is the dna revolution chapter 10 uh, is titled dna the basics uh, here uh, the author clearly defines different uh, uh, different items that are related to dna and uh, genetics uh, so for example he talks about what a chromosome pair is um, and what are the what are those chromosomes made of which are which is nucleotides um, adenine guanine thymine and cytosine um and two percentage of these nucleotides the whole chromosome uh, the, the the whole uh, dna that we have only two percentage of that codes for 20000 genes that have been identified the remaining is con- was considered to be junk dna but we now know that they have roles in transcription of uh, genes into i mean transcription of dna to rna uh, which is what gets translated into protein he also explains about what codons are codons are three letter rna uh, sequences that code for uh, a specific amino acid uh, and chains of these amino acid form proteins and proteins are the major uh, building blocks of our body haploid cells have only one set of chromosome uh, these haploid cells are sperm sperm cells and egg cells the one percentage that differs between us causes the individual differences that we observe between people um the the concept of single nucleotide poly- polymorphism is also explained in this chapter uh, single nucleotide polymorphism is just a uh, just just where one base pair um one base in the dna sequences altered with a different base 
Um, so that is what is called a single nucleotide polymorphism. It is just a mutation in the DNA sequence. Uh, but it is just one. One base is changed in the DNA. The concept of variable gene expression is also discussed here where different types of cells express different types of genes. Um, which is what we uh, observe also because we don't see eyes growing near the neck. Uh, it will be called a steratomas if things like that happen. Um, the definition of what an allele is mentioned, which is what uh, an allele is a variant of a particular gene. Um, what a genotype is defined. Uh, genotype is the description of the pair of alleles of a gene from the mother and father in their offspring. So the DNA is a double standard uh, structure. So one strand comes from the uh, uh, mother and one strand comes from the father. So these alleles, the description of these alleles from both the parents is described as a genotype. We can understand this with the help of the FTO gene, which is uh, implicated in obesity. Um, children who inherit the AA allele or AT allele are more prone to eat higher quantities of food compared to those who have the wild type TT allele from their parents. So um, a, a child which has T from uh, the mother and T from the father has the lowest risk for obesity while the child which has A and T or A and A from the mother and father, those ch children have higher risk compared to the child which has a TT allele of that FTO gene. And uh, the major reason for uh, the major reason for genetics being uh, implicated in all these things is because of single nucleotide polymorphism microarrays and uh, genome-wide association studies. Uh, these have changed the game by finding DNA markers for different diseases because of their ability to bring cost down for analysis and also the ability to analyze a large number of samples for a particular phenotype or a trait. Chapter 11 is titled Gene Hunting. Candidate gene approach uh, is something where one is trying to identify one gene for one disorder. This was a failure in terms of uh, identifying psychological disorders as many of the psychological problems are polygenic. That is, they are caused due to the cumulative effect of many different DNA differences that contribute small amounts to the large trait expression. Um, so, the, the, since this was a failure, uh, a successful model was the genome-wide association studies. Uh, it does the opposite of candidate gene approach and makes it possible to systematically look for single nucleotide polymorphisms in the DNA at a larger scale. Um, so this is done using single nucleotide polymorphism arrays uh, or SNP arrays, that is how they are called. Um, and uh, once, so, so what is measured using these um, genome-wide association studies is polygenic scores. Um, the, the, with these polygenic scores, predicting psychological or even physiological outcomes becomes much easier. Single nucleotide polymorphism contributes to one percentage or less than one percentage of that disorder um, in conventional uh, medical model. Um, the problem with that is conducting uh, genome-wide association studies for that disorder to just identify one percentage of the uh, difference because of that single nucleotide polymorphism, we would need more than a million cases to just uh, to have a larger effect size, uh, to identify large effect size and uh, have a statistical significance. Um, this is extremely hard to find because we won't have more than a million cases of a particular disorder. Even if we have, obtaining a grant 
and logistical problems will uh, limit the ability to conduct those studies this is another reason why disorder should be relegated to the background and dimensions should be the new term while classifying psychological traits uh, or you know disabilities or disorders once the dimension classification is used conducting genome wide association studies becomes much easier as each person is a sample who can be used for the analysis because they are expressing the trait of interest at a differential level which is what dimensions say um, and it will help develop the normal distribution curve for the gene expression or dna difference contributing to that trait so that way getting 1000 or getting a million samples is much easier because we are not looking at people who have the disorder but all people who express the trait uh, mostly psychological traits are expressed by everyone so anyone and everyone can uh, be a part of the study chapter 12 is called the dna fortune teller 0.01 percentage of the fx size in trait expression is due to dna differences for most cases so uh, each single included polymorphism may only contribute to 0.01 percentage of the fx size that we observe hence calculating the composite score in the form of a polygenic score is useful in uh, uh, useful while doing genome wide association studies so what happens is genome wide association studies are done which give us a polygenic score which help us predict the differences between individuals not population as in the case of heritability we are looking at individuals here also the false positives that may arise due to single nucleotide polymorphisms don't affect the prediction uh, from polygenic scores uh, they just don't add anything to the score since we are looking at dimensions here and not disorders um, hence the trade off to include more snps even if they may contribute to false positives is accepted here on the other hand increasing the number of single nucleotide polymorphism genotypes included in the polygenic score calculation the better it explains the variance in causing individual differences in traits so the more uh, sample the, the the higher the sample size the power of the study is higher polygenic scores can't predict 100% of the variance of any trait as the ceiling for prediction is heritability the point is how much do polygenic scores predict the heritable variance of a trait since polygenic scores are always south of 100% in terms of prediction so that is what is the point here um this gap is called the missing heritability that is the heritability of a trait like intelligence could be 80% um the point now is how much of this 80% can the polygenic scores predict so it can't predict the 100% because the heritability of the trait is itself only 80% so the maximum predictability uh, using uh, polygenic scores can only be 80% that is what i mean by the ceiling being heritability Uh, having polygenic scores uh, with the help of genome wide association studies is a powerful tool that can help us be informed of our genetic propensities and take appropriate action in our lives so being forewarned is the path towards being forearmed um success and failure credit and blame in overcoming a problem should be calibrated against genetic strengths and weaknesses not due to will power or other such um uh, usual connotations associated with success and failure or credit and blame that is um genetics not the lack of will power is the main reason why people differ in their bmi for example uh, but knowing this information about you that you have a genetic propensity to be overweight or have a higher bmi compared to uh, the average uh, it will be helpful for you to design your environment to not let the genes damage your physiology chapter 13 is predicting who we are 
Polygenics scores can now predict 7% of the liability of being diagnosed as a schizophrenic. Polygenic scores can now predict 3% of the liability of being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Polygenic scores can now predict 1% of the liability of being diagnosed with major depressive disorder. And this is all just from a sample of 10,000 people who have these disorders. Uh, once we start characterizing it as dimensions and include more samples in, the level of prediction will only increase based on polygenic scores. The whole chapter talks about the importance of polygenic scores here and how it can help us. Uh, the, the, the polygenic scores are powerful predictors compared with other social or environmental variables that were used for prediction for prediction of incidence of such disorders previously. Because even with a small sample, we are able to predict significantly higher effect uh, sizes compared to what the environmental factors were uh, accounting for. Knowing or not knowing the genetic risks based on polygenic scores is a question that bioethicists think about, uh, especially when you can't do anything about a disease that your DNA predisposes you to. For example, there is this uh, allele variation which is apolipoprotein uh, E4 uh, for Alzheimer's disease. So people with that variant of the allele, um, variant of the gene, are uh, extremely likely to have Alzheimer's disease in their life. Uh, but Knowing this risk can help us design our environment in such a way that we stave it off for as late as possible in the life. We know that it is going to happening, but we can at least uh, not pour oil over the fire by not having proper environmental cues to uh, stave it off for later. Also, polygenic scores can predict abilities. For example, high polygenic scores for schizophrenia predicts creativity also. So, uh, there have also been many examples of brilliant scientists and artists who had terrible bouts of schizophrenia and actually did their best work when they were having these delusions. Uh, there is a lot to be learned about the lower end or tail of the polygenic score distribution as, as psychologists and physiologists have always only studied disorders which are at one end of the distribution of trait expression um, and not the dimensions. Um, for example, those on the lower end of polygenic score for obesity prediction may have fussiness about food and may be at risk of anorexia. Someone with a low polygenic score for emotionality and impulsiveness may be good at making decisions. They, they're not impulsive enough uh, to make decisions uh, in a haste. Um, but, they, but, but the downside of that is they could be emotionless and callous while those, are, those who are emotional or uh, impulsive may be extremely passionate in certain regards such as in love or business or whatever they do which keeps them going. The bottom line here is as I said polygenic scores predictive power will increase as time passes since more samples will be added which will increase the uh, variance in a trait that the polygenic score can predict. Chapter 14 Our Future is DNA We have all heard the maxim correlation is not equal to causation. One exception to this rule is polygenic scores um, because the correlation between polygenic scores and traits is unidirectional that is there is no doubt as to what is cause and what is effect. Um, DNA differences which are stable since the first uh, fertilized egg are the cause and the difference in trait is its effect. So it is unidirectional. We know the DNA differences are causing the effect. Uh, we don't know the mechanisms of how this cause causes the effect, but we know what caused the effect. Um, polygenic scores are for individuals and are compared to a population average. So it is 
taken for an individual and compared against the population average for predicting genetic propensities towards a particular trait problems in psychology can now be identified based on causes that is dna differences rather than symptoms thanks to the polygenic scores that are estimated for different psychological problems nowadays um many psychological traits are usually measured by tests which the person can do well or poorly for example intelligence tests um and it is based on a variety of factors such as their mood at the time of taking the test the incentive for them to participate in the test prior experience taking such tests etc uh, and these may not give a good prediction of their future performance on related traits um hence polygenic scores which are based on a stable item like dna is much more reliable in predicting the cause of an impending or established psychological trait or disorder uh these polygenic scores make it clear that genetic risk is continuous that is it is dimensions it is not qualitative abnormal or uh, abnormal versus normal um but it is quantitative and continuous polygenic scores also help index problems quantitatively that is um it helps us understand the degree of risk along a normal distribution of expression of a trait of interest um polygenic scores will also make personalized medicine possible uh, that is individually tailored medicine um an example of this would be pharmacogenomics where um drugs are prescribed based on a person's uh, genomic ability to metabolize that drug polygenic scores would help us do that for psychological problems as well and for other physiological problems polygenic scores will also help in starting to look at prevention strategies rather than cure in both psychology and physiology it also promote positive genomics that is it will help focus on the good end of the normal distribution instead of just focusing on the negative end the extreme dimensions of a trait of normal distribution um it should also be understood that polygenic scores are not biomarkers biomarkers can be bidirectional that is Uh, we won't know if the biomarker is the cause of expression of a trait, or if the expression of a trait is the cause of the biomarker. Um, so their prediction is causal, making the predictions based on polygenic scores more reliable in attacking the causes directly, or at least understanding the cause of a particular uh, trait expression. The way in which polygenic scores are interpreted should also change. That is. um as we discussed low polygenic scores on obesity or bmi is not just a low risk for obesity or putting on weight easily it may also indicate fussiness about food and uh, anorexia um in such cases having an average score would mean that you have a better genetic luck um with these polygenic scores there comes a, there are other implications as well so what happens when people opt for designer babies in uh, in vitro fertilization clinics with a better that they that they select embryos with a better polygenic score profile um the, the there are multiple uh, good things that come from understanding polygenic scores and uh, estimating polygenic scores for different traits um but also some uh, bad things might happen um like unfair advantage of embryos with a better polygenic score profile so as always uh, this should be looked at in a case by case basis okay so those are the things from the book um my overall view of the book the book is an excellent read and will change the way you think about genetics and about life in general uh, it will give a different perspective to um information out there in the world 
um i'm so glad that i read it and it may seem like a pessimistic book if you just read a short review of the book somewhere uh, because it seems like uh, there's too much emphasis on genetics and not a lot of things that we can do from our side but the deeper meaning it conveys is extremely powerful and liberating just like the realization about the non existence of free will or at least not as much free will as we believe that we have um it, it the the this this information is liberating in that sense um if you would like to spend your money in a good way i would recommend that you invest in this book um this is one of the best books i have read in a long while uh, i'll post the links to uh, this book on amazon and audible in the description below in the next podcast i'll be speaking with my uh, thesis supervisor who has graciously accepted to be on the podcast he's an expert on epigenetics and if you have any questions that you would like me to ask him based on listening to this book uh, review let me know uh, i'll try to ask him during the uh, conversation that i have with him i enjoy doing the process of going through the book and uh, collecting some of the important points along with the context of the book so that you have a better understanding of the book not just the uh, important points but the larger context in which it is um, uh, written um if you like the concept of this type of book review let me know by subscribing to the youtube channel and uh, subscribing to the podcast if you are listening via a podcast app also share it with your friends it will help me and uh, help them also get a lot of information about genetics and a different perspective on life so thank you for listening i'll see you all in the next episode of the podcast out